So good morning, evening, good late afternoon, good uh, late, late night, depending on where you are in the world. Today, we're going to be talking about meat and heart disease. You know, it's so interesting. After so many uh, Jack uh, Journal of, of the American College of Cardiology, after so many uh, Jack uh, reviews uh, I'm, and other reviews saying meats should be safe. Yeah, I still get a lot of people saying, oh, no, I don't eat much meat. That's bad for you. And it's like, and in fact, you see it from a whole lot of, quote, experts on the Internet, too. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. There are a few things that remain, like TMAO. Parker Reed's already seen the, uh, seen the article, uh, the title here, and is asking some questions about TMAO. So we will talk a little bit about that. We're actually going to cover a few uh, more recent articles on these topics. And then I'll talk about my perspective and my review of the evidence that's out there. If you haven't joined our, our channel before, if it's new to you, we're basically about heart attack and stroke prevention. We also get into things like preventing blindness and uh, kidney disease. So it's, there's a lot of important stuff here. But, you know, it's interesting Every one of these things that I've mentioned so far really boils down to 80% of it, at least, being caused by one thing, and that is diabetes and prediabetes. And you say, well, that doesn't matter to me because I don't have that. Hmm. If you're 30 years or older, the probability of you having one of those is over 50%. So to quote you know, the Dirty Harry movie, Are You Feeling Lucky? Now, <clears throat> there's some other things that cause this. For example, inflammatory diseases, the classic inflammatory disease that causes significant cardiovascular risk is uh, rheumatoid arthritis. But I see it with a lot of patients with psoriatic arthritis, uh, other inflammatory diseases, um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, some of those. Now, some inflammatory diseases don't cause it, but others do. So you got to be careful with that. Now, <clears throat> I had another question, again, coming up saying, Doc, do you agree with Ivor Cummins? I used to agree with him on a lot of stuff. I still agree with him on a lot of stuff. Um, and... Um, I don't necessarily agree with them on some of he he seems to have gotten into almost a uh, conspiracy theory mode. But the question I had here was um <clears throat> JMK2921 would you agree with Ivor when he opines that a healthy lifestyle and diet obliterates any genetic predisposition for metabolic diseases? I think obliterates, you know, I think the question really here, I think all of us know that lifestyle is more important than anything else. Would I have used the word obliterate? You know, I, I'm not sure that I would have uh, because I've got some, um, I, I've got some people with major genetic uh, predisposition for uh diabetes and prediabetes and others which have very little. So I have some people 
genetically who just don't have to do so much in terms of their lifestyle, despite the fact that they're 70 years old and other people who are 45 who really, really have to control their lifestyle. Does that fit within Ivor's term of obliterates um, or and how people would interpret it? Mm, I'm not so sure. So anyhow, let's get back to uh, the script for today. Um, other, so if, again, if you haven't been on this channel before, um, as you might guess, if prediabetes and diabetes are key, then you might realize a couple of other things. You know, the, it, it used to be only the wealthier countries that had this problem. Uh, the world has, you know, there are still problems with wealth and wealth distribution in this world, but there are far fewer problems with people being able to access food than there were 30 years ago. And guess what? When we get, when we, when a country decreases their problem of being able to access food, then they start going into this problem. This problem of heart attack, uh, stroke, cardiovascular disease starts becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger issue. It's now bigger, you know, it's a growing issue in, in Japan, China. Um, you know, Japan wasn't so much a wealth issue, but yes, it's a big, huge growing issue in Japan, China, India, uh, Brazil, you know, the BRIC countries, countries that are growing quickly in terms of the economy. And, um, uh, decades ago, really had some issues in terms of food access. Um, you still see some food access issues, especially more in the African continent. And those are places where you have far fewer issues in terms of cardiovascular disease. So the sort of topics that you'll see on our show would be uh, the myth behind dairy fat. We covered that just last week. Aspirin for, quote, secondary prevention. And the key word here is not aspirin or prevention, it's secondary. What does secondary mean? Um, and how to become the part of the healthiest top 10. So if you look at our topics, again, we cover basically everything in terms of life extension, uh, healthy life. But we focus on the thing that's killing more people and disabling more people than anything else. Insulin resistance, prediabetes, plaque, cardiovascular plaque, cardiovascular inflammation. And if you go back and you look at the statistics and, you know, look at the science, that's what we keep doing on this channel. Unfortunately, most of us depend on our doctors to know this, to know what to do about it. And unfortunately, tragically, two thirds of doctors in the United States, according to research by folks at Hopkins, Mayo, Harvard, two-thirds of primary care docs, internists, family practitioners, even cardiologists do not know how to diagnose prediabetes, let alone manage it. So guess what? That's a big problem. So you have to learn. If you want to protect your own health, you have to learn some things yourself. And that was the that's the purpose for these courses. Within a couple of hours, you can learn um, more than your doctor uh, knows, probably 
learn more than your doctor knows about these three topics, which are the major sources of death and disability and therefore risk for most, the vast majority of us watching this channel. Speaking of watching this channel, um, there's several different ways to access our information. Uh, YouTube uh, was our original uh, source and we now ha actually have a YouTube uh, uh, membership. If you're interested in helping us get life-saving information out to uh, other people in the world, please join. That's a great way to, uh, to make a small contribution. Um, if you're more of a locals or rumbles person, we have content there. Um, and so just check us up, hit us up. Um, we'll talk more about subscription plans a little bit later as we start getting deeper into discussion about the, uh, Medicare programs, the Medicare programs are kicking off. And, um, let me just, I'm going to skip over the discussions about the book and even patavastatin today and talk a little bit more about our Medicare programs. We did our first AW, pilot AWVs yesterday and they went very, very well. Um, if, you if you're a Medicare enrollee and you haven't had an AWV, again, you ought to check us out. We can help you, uh, help you get there without leaving the comfort of your own home and uh, we can help you get started. You know, one of the biggest issues for folks in terms of uh, watching us and working with us, two big issues. Number one, well, you're remote. I don't know how to see a doctor on telemedicine. We've always been telemedicine for the five years that we've been, five or six years that we've been practicing uh, in this environment. Well, guess what? Be careful what you ask for. Uh, we had a thing called COVID pandemic and everybody got locked in. So people got used to seeing docs. That's not so much an issue anymore. The second big issue about coming to see us was we have been very expensive. Uh, we did not accept uh, insurance. And now we're there. We're starting to accept insurance. And um, if you have an interest in coming to see us, Again, just give us a call, 859, uh, excuse me, is it 859-721-1414? Yep, 859-721-1414. Give us a call and start asking about, uh, ask us about the Medicare program. Now, many of you have said, look, I, I like what you're doing, Doc. It's not at all what my doc's doing. And can you teach my doc? We heard you. We actually did that in Alabama for the Alabama project. I came from a history of doing that. I was the chief science officer for a company called Physician Partners down in Tampa, uh, Florida, for a few years, too. So I know how to teach docs how to get into prevention, how to understand the risk management, risk evaluation components um, associated with keeping people healthy. And guess what? Medicare has really begun to change their payment systems where they uh, encourage that. So I teach docs how to do that. If you'd like to, for your doc to start learning how to do that, recommend these, um, this information to him or to her. We've got a YouTube channel to support it. It's youtube.com at Doctors Prevention Network. We've got a website. It's um, Physicians Network dot prevmedhealth.com. 
So come by and see us, recommend your doc uh, to come by and see us as well. And if you're just curious about how some of these things work for your doctor, and you want to be able to have more of that discussion with your doctor, go to the YouTube channel. It starts to get into some significant detail on how this works. Now, to some of the uh, technical content for today, some of the article coverage, science coverage, risk coverage, uh, evidence. Let's talk about empagliflozin. What the heck is empagliflozin? It's one of the SGLT2s. You know, the SGLT2s are like Jardiance, Farzaga. Those are the two that I most commonly use. So those are the ones that basically, you know, here, here's what happens with the SGLT2s. You're, when you have diabetes or significant prediabetes, when your blood sugar gets up over 100, your kidneys filter it out into the urine. But then after they filter it out and it's going down the, the pipes in the kidneys for the urine, there are special mechanisms within those pipes that pull the glucose back into the blood. The SGLT2s stop that process. So it's sort of like a really neat safety valve. The SGLT2s basically say, look, uh, when your blood sugar, when it's 100 or below, when it's in a safe level, it doesn't do anything. But when your blood sugar goes over 100, then it starts filtering it out, that blood sugar. So that's one of the reasons. We've talked multiple times over the past couple of years about the, uh, the two drug classes that are just knocking it out of the park in terms of uh, heart failure, uh, cardiovascular events, heart attack, stroke, death. And this is one of them the SGLT2s. The other one is the injection that we've talked about multiple times, uh, Ozempic, uh, Ozempic and the other GLP ones. So to this article, New England Journal of 2023, January of this, this uh, year, effects of empagliflozin, the SGLT2s, in patients with chronic kidney disease. Now that's one of the big questions. Uh, if you have kidney disease, and guess what the most common cause of kidney disease is? Insulin resistance and diabetes. So that's why this is a big question. One of the two major drug classes that really helps with diabetes uh, impacts the kidney. So the question is, does, um, does it, is there something inherent to that impact, that mechanism on the kidneys that causes um, kidney damage. So here's what part of what they're looking at. Who are, um, the Impa Kidney Collaborative Group conducted a randomized placebo-controlled trial that evaluated the effects of treatment with the SGLT2 on kidney disease and cardiovascular outcomes. The results from the trial of at least 200 showed the benefits with respect to kidney failure extended to patients without diabetes but there are limited data regarding patients with a lower uh, GFR, even a GFR, kidney disease like 30 and below, very significant kidney failure. Now, <clears throat> pardon that tiny print. Um, I, we went through this the other day and I don't, I thought we fixed that, that tiny print problem. 
anyhow, the bottom line is, as you can see, um, these are basically, these are called Kaplan-Meier life uh, event numbers. So what their life tables, uh, people in life insurance use them. So <clears throat> every time somebody has an event, their number goes up. So the placebos, as you can see, more and more and more events. The SGLT2s, significantly less events. So looks like it worked, didn't it? And the answer is yes, it did. And Jesus, when you go back and review this, uh, remember and take a look about that text. So, um, Gilbert, if you'll give us the uh, the water ball, we'll start talking about today's major topic, meat and heart disease. Should you go vegan? Well, maybe I should go ahead and and disrupt the uh, the hey, what's he talking about uh, now? No, I'm I'm not going to go vegan, and I'm not recommending that you do. In fact, what we'll see is uh, a little bit more evidence that again, these people that are still afraid of meat, they need to look at the evidence. You know, the <laughs> I did a video on TMAO. Uh, what, three or four years ago, in the trimet, uh, trimethylamine N oxide. Trimethylamine oxide. Now, it has been, you know, once, um, you know, Nina Teicholz did her book, and then you got a couple of uh, meta-analyses about saturated fat, it was like, okay, well, if saturated fat doesn't cause disease, Maybe you still got disease and risk, and maybe it's coming from TMAO. And you actually had some studies which um, looked at trimethylamine oxidase, TMAO, and uh, looked at how it worked. There was another good, good study that we're not going to quote today that uh, checked on, basically it proved that gut, the gut biome actually had an impact in this space. But at the end of the day, it still did not cause significant risk unless you had kidney failure. But that's a different article, and we'll discuss it at a different time. Let's go back to the topic in the article for this article for today. It's in atherosclerosis, thrombosis, and vascular biology, August of last year. TMAO was linked to cardiovascular disease and thought to be present considerably in red meat. In this article, researchers included almost 4,000 adults, 65 or older, from the cardiovascular heart study. They followed them for 12 and a half years, and the patients filled in a food frequency questionnaire. The authors evaluated the incidence of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Now, you're going to be surprised, given what I keep saying to the, on the results here. Total meat was associated with uh, cardiovascular disease, 1.22 hazard ratio for total meat. TMAO was associated in up to 10.6% um, 
uh, between one and 114 in terms of proportion. The authors of that study believe that this supports the idea that higher meat intake is associated with cardiovascular disease, partly mediated by micro the microbiome. I don't. Here's a couple of reasons why. Low quality data, uh, the associations are not cause and effect relationships, and they're tiny associations. 1.22 for total meat. One means zero risk. And if you go back, you see here, it, uh, you look at the statistics, and the statistics do go down as low as one and as high as 114. So when you see that huge of a spread, major tip-off, that's a major red flag from a science perspective, that they didn't probably didn't find much. Their study was, quote, underpowered, meaning they didn't have enough data for the specific question to answer the specific question in the means that they were trying to answer it. Here's another issue. You know, we talk about, uh, well, most of the people that say that meat's bad for you say, well, fish is good for you. There's more TMAO in fish than there is in meat. So ask them how to explain that piece. Uh, FFQs are known for not being accurate. What's an FFQ? Food frequency questionnaire. You know, I remember back when I was back at Hopkins deep into epidemiology and there was a there were a couple of things that we learned about food epidemiology. One was the they're all done by history, the, and these histories are notoriously bad. And the reality is, uh, it's ten twenty four Eastern time where I live, and I can remember what I had for breakfast today. But that's because I almost always have just about the same thing. I had a couple of uh, boiled eggs that I made into deviled eggs and a couple of links of sausage. Um, now, back to, this is not about my breakfast. This is about memory. I can't tell you what I had for breakfast two days ago, three days ago. I can't tell you what I had for dinner last night at this point in time. And these food frequency questionnaires really depend on people being able to remember all that which they can't remember. So back to some of my comments about the overall uh, epidemiology of food. The other thing that you realize is that it's not quite so much, you know, eating and calories and carbs are much more of a Quantity is a bigger issue there. But for exposures like these, if, if you had something twice a week and you had a bigger, a bigger dose, a bigger helping, a bigger serving, you know, you had two servings rather than one, that really doesn't make a difference so, nearly so much as food frequency. In other words, food frequency we're, we're creatures of habit, especially in terms of food. And what matters is what's in your food habit more so than um, how, how big your dose was. 
So let's go back. Uh, so that's why I am just not, um, I don't believe that study. And uh, again, that's a part of what we do on this channel, help people understand a little bit more about the evidence. Now, speak, I, I mentioned Nina Teicholz a few minutes ago, and uh, she mentioned this in her book. The idea that TMAO causes heart disease and meat consumption is the main source has been proposed since 2011. Since 2015, Procter & Gamble has funded research on this, like the original paper we discussed. Now, why would they do that? I'm not going to get into that. <clears throat> the props, uh, more problems behind this, this study. Uh, Darius Mazafarian, Dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University, created the Food Compass. It rated Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes, and 70 branded name cereals higher on the food, uh, desirable food chain, food network or food list than eggs and ground beef. Dean of Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Sciences. So <clears throat> he's saying eat cereal, Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes, and don't eat eggs or ground beef. So uh, you, I'm, I, maybe I'm starting to sound like uh, Ivor Cummins and a conspiracy theorist here. <laughs> and let's see if we can pull up a few of these questions for today. Bobby uh, Ocampo, Mabuhai. Bobby, Bobby's in the Philippines and Mabuhai means something like happy life, good life. Parker Reed, a few questions ahead of the discussion. Concerns uh, such as TMAO, saturated fat, cholesterol. I'm not going to talk. Well, I will just make a comment about I did make a couple of comments about uh, saturated fat. Everybody thought saturated fat was a killer until Nina Teicholz took a book and wrote a book and it was called The Big Fat Surprise. Now, that was a good book. Um, it was not so hard and hard science, you know, like what we talk about here, but it was really good science reporting. And she raised questions for a lot of people. And so much so that um, after that, several meta-analyses came out, were done and came out about, um, about saturated fat. All of these analyses show that saturated fat is not a risk factor. Now, a lot of people would say, then it's good for you. It didn't really show that it was good for you either, but it did show that it's not a risk factor. And for those of us for whom carbohydrates are poisons, it's a big deal. Uh, you want to be able to get calories. I have a lot of people who are really watching their carbs, rightly so, because carbs are poison for them and carbs um, injure their vascular tree. And that's actually over half of us at this point in time. So the ability to get some calories in there that are uh, other than carbs is very, very important. Now, Parker, the other thing that I didn't mention. So uh, TMAO, as we discussed, not an issue. Um, saturated fat doesn't look like it's an issue. And I didn't mention cholesterol because 
I thought that most of the people watching this channel have the level of sophistication and background knowledge. I don't hear many people say anymore, oh, I don't want to eat cholesterol because that's going to cause me problems. Uh, I, I think and hope that we got rid of that misperception decades ago. It was very true back in the 60s. I mean, people that people thought that, that cholesterol was a big problem. And despite the fact that our body makes dozens of times more cholesterol than we would ever eat in a day. Parker Reed, unless you know where your, peat come, your meat came from, there are concerns on antibiotics, hormones, and animals, uh, hormones the animals are given. Well, those are concerns, but, you know, it's also like fish. Uh, I eat a lot of salmon, and people say, oh, you must, you must have a huge salmon bill. Where do you get your salmon? It's got to be fresh caught. I hate to tell you, I eat a lot of farmed salmon, and it's like I know I'm going to get a lot of hater comments about that. Bottom line is, and I've seen the videos about all of the uh, the challenges with you know the how uh, nasty farm salmon can be. Bottom line is, uh, <clears throat> go back and take a look at your statistics. You don't see people going into the hospital and having strokes and uh, and getting maimed and killed by problems with farm salmon no matter how dirty it is. You don't see that from um, use of antibiotics in meat growing. You don't see that from hormones in meat growing. I, I have no argument that all of these are issues. They're very serious issues. In fact, we have the use of the overuse of antibiotics in farms. You know, as a, I've been a corporate medical director all my life. And, um, I have spent more time than I want to tell you coaching docs not to overuse antibiotics. Well, <clears throat> and then I find out later in my career that while I was trying to watch the front door, the, the fox was stealing the chickens in the back. Um, farmers were using, uh, industrial level farmers were using so many antibiotics that farms were creating more of this problem than doctors were. That's not entirely true, It's, uh, but I'm not going to get into the details on it. So I'm far less concerned. I, I agree that these are all problems. Uh, bacteria, uh, antibiotics, and hormones. But they're nothing like the problem that we get when we say, okay, well, I'm not going to eat any of that. I'm not going to eat any of that. I'm just going to eat carbs instead. Well, that's what's killing us. JMK2921, would you agree with medical researcher Ivor Commons when he agrees that a healthy lifestyle and diet obliterates genetic predisposition? No, you know, Ivor is not a doc and he doesn't have patients. And I would say, yes, it's more important. Uh, genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. But there's a lot of people with a major hair trigger. On the other hand, there's a lot of people with a very, very stiff trigger. <clears throat> In other words, genetics are important. Uh, obliterates is not a term I would use typically. Rick Folia from Atlanta. Good to hear from you, Rick. Thank you so much for joining. 
and thanks for telling us where you're from. Thanks, Bobby, for reminding folks to like and share. When you like and share this content, more and more people uh, get exposed to it because the internet, the AI, artificial intelligence, looks at that and says, hey, there are humans watching this and they think it's really good. So I'm going to refer it to other humans, put it out there in front of them so they can see it. Felix Cat, in terms of high LP, little a, is vegan diet helpful in lowering it or are we better off with a low carb, high fiber diet? I would say the latter. And you're probably making that on the assumption that LP little a is really more of an uh, response to cardiovascular inflammation uh, than a cause. In other words, the fireman, not the arsonist. And if you don't understand that comment and analogy, uh, let us know and we'll talk about it a little bit. Millard Woods or Millard Woods. Good morning, Doc, and thanks for being here. (laughs) Not on the golf course. Thanks for the recognition. I'm not a good golfer. I, I, I have to play a lot of it before I start enjoying it. I'm not terrible, but I'm not really that good. And I can save more lives doing this. So thank you again, uh, Millard, 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 Mr. Woods. Uh, Bambi Grage, good morning. Good morning, Bambi. Uh, Bambi joined us way, way back in terms of some comments. Same girl. Can you go over on what will heal myocarditis? Well, it really depends on what caused the myocarditis. There's uh, in some myocarditis that's a result of viral infections, uh, some that's a result of um, other things. The majority of them are results of cross-reactivity of antigens and antibodies. In other words, so what's happened? I, I gave this visual to a friend once and they laughed and they said, you know, that's a really good visual. So here's what happens. If we say this is the antigen, this is a virus and it's got a coating with that kind of bumps on it. And this is the antibody. Our body creates antibodies and those antibodies are created at random, but every now and then it creates an antibody that fits well with the antigen. When that happens, then the antibody-antigen complex goes to the lymph nodes. And, you know, you sometimes have them in your neck. You'll have them in your groin. You have them in your armpits. You have them everywhere. When a lymph node is presented with an antibody-antigen complex, it recognizes, hey, we've got an antigen or an invader in here. And then it starts making more and more and more of this this specific antibody. So that's how the basics of uh, antibody-based immunity works. Now, unfortunately, sometimes this this configuration matches not only that antigen, but it matches something else, like protein in the thyroid gland or protein in the muscle of the heart or protein in our joint. If it's thyroid gland, you get Hashimoto's thyroiditis. If it's in the muscles of the heart, it's um, uh, myocarditis. 
if it's in the joints, it's rheumatoid arthritis. If it's in the skin, it's some different types of inflammatory diseases. One of the most, you know, most well-known and common is psoriatic arthritis. So these autoimmune diseases are a big deal. Um, and it is a challenge to deal with these. The biggest thing is to remove the antigen and to slow down the immune response that's causing it. It is a big, big challenge. Rick Folia, what are some co uh, common causes for slightly low platelet counts? 120s, 130s. Seems to have occurred after starting Crestor 40 milligrams two years ago. I haven't heard of Crestor causing um, low platelet counts. There are some medications that do that. Uh, there are also some diseases that do that. One of the major things to do is just to make sure that you've get, gotten an evaluation of those low that low platelet count by your doc. And usually that's going to be more of an internist. Some family practitioners uh, have that skill set and level for uh, investigating those. Others, uh, not so much. Rick of the Gun One, I understand that simple carbs can be bad. Is a high-fat diet mixed with simple carbs more dangerous than either a high-protein or high complex carb diet mixed with simple carbs. Well, first of all, let me, I'm a little bit confused about the question and it seems like there's more than one questions here. Let me just deal with the complex carb diet. Every, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. You want whole wheat or, or whole grains. Yeah, simple carbs are bad, but whole grains are good for you. Just go, you know, go get some, get, get some whole wheat bread um, measure your glucose before you eat the whole wheat bread, measure it afterwards. You know what the glycemic relative glycemic values are for, for whole wheat bread. It's like 70 for white bread, which is the worst you can eat. Uh, what six in the sixties for whole wheat bread and pure sugars like in the fifties. Both of these are are more glycemic, cause more blood sugar rise than pure sugar. And we're talking about whole grain food there. So <clears throat> to your point, no, please don't bite that misperception. It's lethal to say that, oh, whole grains are fine or they're good for me. If you can't eat carbs, whole grains are not good for you. They just aren't. And, and you know how to measure that? And you, you want to argue with me? I, I used to have that debate. There's no reason to have the debate. Just do this, the test. Do the study. Do what we talked about. Now, the other question about mixing fats. So I used to have, I used, here's another debate that I used to get in with patients all the time. I, the patients would say, look, I, um, doc, you cannot tell me that oatmeal is not good for me. Oatmeal is great. And guess what? Doc, you know, it says that right on the box. Good for heart health. And I'd say, yeah, I, <laughs> I know that. But it's not for you. Uh, it's not good for you. And, you know, then they'd still want to get more into that argument because they couldn't believe it. And I quit. I quit participating in that debate. And basically what I say is, you know, just do the test. 
measure your glucose before a big bowl of oatmeal and measure it afterwards. Now, so here's the next question, Ricky the Gun, in terms of mixing with, with fat. So fat can slow it down. And, and part of what you're referring to is, again, some discussions I was having yesterday with a patient, uh, the glycemic load or the glycemic value of the meal, not the sp one specific item. So, uh, and here's what, here's where we went with that. So, if we have a patient who says, I, I don't get it, doc, you know, I understand what you're saying, but I've eaten oatmeal for breakfast every day for 30 years and I'm just not ready to change. Then our next, our backup, you know, we try to get them to change rather than have them eat eggs or something that doesn't have all those carbs in it. If they're, you know, if they can't eat carbs. Um, <clears throat> So here's the backup plan. If they say, yeah, I, I can't do it. I still got to eat my oatmeal. Then the next question is, well, can you put some peanut butter in it? Why? For exactly the reason that you're bringing up, Ricky the Gun One. Adding fat to that, the fat associated with the peanut oil um, slows down the glycemic value of the meal in total. So once that fat hits the stomach, it slows it down in terms of just pumping it right through to the intestines and then pumping that those carbs out to the blood sugar, to increase the blood sugar. So I hope that dealt, that was a great question. And uh, I hope that dealt with all the different parts and innuendos in that question. Bobby Ocampo, will rapamycin make autophagy faster by down-regulating mTOR? and metformin by upregulating AMK, AMPK. Will plant-based protein, uh, is it better for autophagy? I don't think that there's any, I've never seen any evidence that plant-based protein is better for autophagy. That's the last question first. And I seem to do that. I always go to the last question first. The next question, does mTOR increase autophagy? Does metformin increase autophagy? The answer is clearly the evidence would indicate yes, in both cases, that they both increase and improve autophagy. And autophagy is a good thing to have. Now, the thing that's perhaps the most effective at improving autophagy, you didn't mention, Bobby, and that is what? Fasting, not having calories to burn then your body has to get in, it has to start getting into cellular recycling, which is exactly what autophagy is. And for those of you who are intimidated by that big word, auto means self and phage means to eat. So this is talking about cells eating parts of themselves to burn for fuel. Like, And that's a good thing because we've got a lot of parts of cells like beat up old mitochondria that really need to be burned up. Well, how do you do that? You do a little fasting. So yeah, everybody wants to do everything the easy way uh, by taking a pill. And some pills like Bobby's pointing out are, do actually do that. But why don't you just try the old fashioned way? Do some fasting. You know, if you look at, um, 
you look at some of the religious leaders, there was one thing that, you know, I got this from Jason Fung. There was one thing that Buddha and Jesus and Confucius and a bunch of other people all agreed on, and that was you need to fast. And guess what? All modern science, what modern science would say they were right about fasting. That's what you need to do. JMK 2921. Is it true that NSAIDs like ibuprofen and naproxen make the blood more coagulable and therefore put coronary artery disease patients at higher risk for MACE, which is uh, cardiovascular outcomes? So the answer is in certain situations, yes. So that's why, you know, <clears throat> uh, Paul Ritker, you may remember that name. I've mentioned him many times in the videos. He was one of the pioneers in understanding this thing about cardiovascular inflammation. He first, first started seeing it in some old studies called Wascoff's West of Scotland trial, Jupiter, things like that. Basically, what they were noticing was that people that were on statins tended to have fewer heart attacks no matter where their LDL level was whether it was going up, going down, high or low, they still tended to have fewer heart attacks. And they began to say that there's got to be something else going on there. And sure enough, they started thinking about, well, maybe it's inflammation. Again, if you have any doubts about what cardiovascular inflammation is, it is our body taking friendly fire, our own immune system attacking plaque within our artery wall and damage to the lining of the artery wall. Uh, those are all things that are associated with cardiovascular inflammation. So I've gone down a bunny hole. Let me come back up out of that bunny hole and tell you why I was there. Paul Redker has gone through and done a lot of studies looking at things like colchicine, um, uh, several other things that decrease inflammation. One of the things he looked at was the NSAIDs. And, you know, Motrin, Naproxen, things like that. And they didn't decrease cardiovascular inflammation at all. So, guess what? All inflammation is not the same. It, and when you realize how complicated the immune system is, you begin to realize and not be surprised that some things that are, quote, inflammation, uh, may or may not cross over and be part of other types of inflammation. So the answer is no, the, the NSAIDs don't help. And you, to your other point, many times they've been shown to help. I mean, to hurt some of the, um, I can't remember the name right now. I'm sure somebody on the channel can, can uh, fact check me. There was a couple of, was it Breck? I keep wanting to say Brexit, but that wasn't right. Uh, there was a, a couple of uh, NSAIDs that were taken off the market because of their increased risk for heart attack, cardiovascular disease. This also gets into a thing called COX-2 inhibition. And um, that... Uh, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go down that bunny hole, but it gets into that as well. Billy Norris, morning doctor, love your live shows. Had a stint put in about a year ago. Started low carb, mostly meat and eggs. Lipids and metabolic numbers keep getting better. 
Would you prefer aspirin or Plavix? Thanks. Well, <clears throat> Billy, uh, I prefer aspirin when you can, uh, when that's a possibility. But uh, once you've had stents and other procedures to your uh, vasculature in your heart, things change and it becomes. And, and so, for example, basic baby aspirin is not adequate for the vast majority of people that have recently had a stent. So you really need to start taking a look, you know, talk with your doc, your cardiologist who did it. I have not met, you know, I, I, I work with cardiologists all the time and uh, I've met plenty of them that don't understand some very basic stuff like how to diagnose prediabetes. But I've met very few that don't understand the basics of post-stent anticoagulation. Fabio Campo, does ortho-operating procedure affect results for MPO, HSCRP? Uh, clearly for CRP, not usually for MPO. So for those of you who don't know what, what Bobby's talking about, uh, Bobby's obviously very informed. Uh, he's talking about the cardiovascular infl inflammation studies that we tend to look at, um, microalbumin creatinine ratio, that's looking at basically whether or not you have uh, microproteinuria. If you are spilling protein into your urine, even at a microscopic amount, then that protein has to have gone through the filters of the kidneys, right? Each kidney has a million filters, and the filters are um, really the lining of the artery wall, the intima. So looking at microalbumin creatinine ratio, is a great way of telling us whether we've got injury to the lining of the artery wall, which is cardiovascular inflammation. There are three other studies that we'll tend to look at, MPO, myeloperoxidase. Myeloperoxidase is an enzyme created by certain groups of immune cells when they uh, start attacking plaque in the artery wall. Myeloperoxidase is the most common form of laboratory false positive out of that group. And then HSCRP, that stands for high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. That's a protein made by the liver in response to inflammation, and it is the most common biological false positive cardiovascular inflammation test. A bump or a bruise, a cut, uh, can cause a positive CRP. If we do if we do a hundred flu shots today, seventy two hours from now, uh, seventy seven of those folks will have a positive C-reactive protein. So you get a lot of false positives from CRP. It's not a it's not false in terms of the, bi the biology, but it's false in terms of your interpretation of thinking that any CRP is due to um, cardiovascular inflammation because that's not what that was. So as I mentioned, um, orthopedic stuff can cause positive CRPs. Great uh, question. Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to go down that bunny hole. Pro Bobby Ocampo, can prolonged 72 hours fasting increase LDL? It actually can, and we've seen that before. And it's similar to a lot of people seeing, if you've heard the term lean mass hyper responder, and that's where people cut their carbs and their LDL starts shooting up. And what's going on there? 
is not entirely accepted or agreed upon yet in terms of mechanism, but the folks that deal with that uh, would tend to agree that you're switching your energy transport mechanisms. You're clearly switching your energy, um, your energy burn. You're no longer just burning carbs, which if carbs are present, your body knows that they can damage your, your artery walls. So if carbs are present, they, uh, your body will prefer to burn carbs. If they're not present, it'll start burning fats. LDLs, LDL particles actually carry, um, fatty acids, large, um, fluffy LDL particles specifically, but others as others as well. So, if those particles are carrying those fatty acids, you know, the fatty acids are what are being made when you're burning fat. So you start seeing an increase in LDL after you stop carbs or you go on a fast. And you start thinking, oh, my goodness, something's really wrong. If you're one of those people that believes too much in LDL being a risk factor. I cannot tell you the number of people that have called me up in a mad panic because they went on a low carb diet or they were doing some fasting and their LDL crept up. So thank you for your interest, Bobby. It's a good question. Rick Farnbach. It seems every disease that inflames the liver and every medicine that targets liver operation like niacin or statins increases insulin resistance. Is the liver the primary target of insulin it's one of two primary targets. The other primary target is, is skeletal muscle. So guess what? You know, we keep talking about this, um, the importance of skeletal muscle. Yes, the liver is incredibly important. The liver is the chemical plant of the body. It is, it's a big deal. The liver is a big deal. But let me go down another another bunny hole for a second. I was with working with a patient yesterday, and the patient said, "Look, you know, I think you need to tell your other folks about my experience." He's a uh, like early seventies male, and he said, "You know, I was just getting weaker and weaker in terms of my legs." I went to see a neurologist. They did a full workup and said everything was okay, um, but. I just have been getting weaker and I've been losing more and more weight. And you said it before. And I'm not sure that I listened effectively. And that is once you get past the early 60s, one of the biggest risk factors for us is loss of muscle mass. And specifically, the big place that we have to worry about loss of muscle mass and loss of muscle metabolism, muscle tissue is in the legs. And sure enough, he, uh, that individual didn't add carbs back to his diet. He added more fats to his diet and protein and started really working out hard on his legs. He's gained uh, 12 pounds in the past three months, and he feels so much better. And guess what his labs did? They improved dramatically after gaining 12 pounds, and it was because it was mostly 12 pounds of muscle in his legs. Bobby Ocampo, if osteocalcin K2 improves glucose uptake, will high osteocalcin put you in an autophagy, put you in autophagy faster? 
I don't think I've ever thought about that, and I'm trying to follow the logic. Osteocalcium, calcium, improving glucose uptake. Okay. You've heard me talk about that. Will high osteocalcin put you in autophagy faster? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, yes, I haven't seen any evidence of that, but I mean, yes, it makes sense. So, I see your logic now. It's very interesting logic. So basically what Bobby's saying is if something improves your insulin resistance, is it also going to, and glucose uptake, is it also going to improve uh, autophagy? And the answer would be yes, it would. Asad Maki, thank you for all you do, Dr. Brewer. Well, thank you for the acknowledgement. Assuming as a pre-diabetic, you will fail OGTT, what would you recommend afterwards? Metformin, GLP-1, thanks. Well, I mean, those are two options, but, you know, uh, somebody else brought it up. LPG brought it up a few minutes ago. How about lifestyle? We've got a lot of stuff. It, you know, life is not easy. Uh, growing old is not for sissies. And, you know, I just, that last thing I shared, a uh, happy 70 something year old man doing a lot of things right on a low carb diet, watching his weight, uh, his weight from that perspective, but continuing to lose weight. And then realizing that he had totally neglected to do the hard work of leg muscle mass. So yes, these uh, drug groups are very important. Metformin is very important. The GLP ones are very important. And as we mentioned in our um, long form content today, uh, the SGLT2s are very important. But as I'm, pardon me, I can't remember who it was that brought the question up, but as somebody brought it up and as Ivor mentioned, lifestyle is very, very important. And I have to tell you, I see a lot more people neglecting uh, leg muscle, you know, the leg muscle exercises, the hard work, the discipline that, and the pain that you got to go through to get that done. Then I see uh, refusing medications. So, I mean, I think that is one of the bigger gaps, understanding and having the discipline to actually do the lifestyle stuff that you need to do. Rebecca Greenwell, good morning from Jacksonville. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Rebecca. I appreciate that. The education you provide is helping many achieve better health. Congratulations on the Medicare program. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I appreciate that. Re refer some patients to us and we would uh, be eternally grateful. JMK again, which diet do you think a diabetic patient with coronary artery disease would benefit mo from the most, a vegan diet or a low-carb carnivore diet? I recently saw a preventive cardiologist and he pushed a plant-based diet. Well, people that push, so <clears throat> I guess you can't say this too much because there's so much information and misinformation out there. You first got to know what you're dealing with. First assess the situation. And here's the problem that most people are, are here's the, the error that most people, including this preventive cardiologist, are making. 
failure to understand that the vast majority of this is being driven by insulin resistance. Once you acknowledge that, then you begin to ask the question, okay, well, there's, if there's something in the diet that's important, we need to, to look at it. Now, that preventive cardiologist and most folks who talk about plant-based foods do have a couple of points. One, one point is it's easier to keep your weight down on plant-based foods. It's easier to decrease your uh, body fat. I'm going to get haters on that comment. I understand that, uh, but please bear with me for a second. But here's the the problem it's easier for many it's not easier for uh for everybody here's the bigger the second issue that's bigger and that outweighs that and that is it's not as easy to get carbs out of your diet if you're plant-based that is the biggest problem now let me go back and here's why you know people get mad at me <laughs> i saw a cousin of mine or a nephew of mine uh, at a family event a few months ago, and he started giving me a hard time. He, he said, yeah, I'm watching your show. It's very good, but you're like a politician. You never just state what you should do. And I get that about, about this issue, about diet. And here's the point. I'm not going to argue with you about whether you do plant-based, animal-based, uh, carnivore, prehistoric, you name it clean. I'm just going to argue with you about knowing if carbohydrates poison you because they poison most people and most people don't know it. So <clears throat> you can do vegan, but you got to do, and I've proven that you can do vegan on low carb. You just got to get most of your carbs from, you got to be fairly re restrictive regarding which plant things you eat, as in most uh, grain related stuff you shouldn't eat. Um, and you need to get most of your calories from healthy fats like avocado oil, uh, things like that, olive oil. If you're going to, um, well, I, I think I covered that. Uh, JMK, let me know if I left some points unturned, let me know. And I am going to have to, let me see what, oh my gosh, I am not going to get to all of the questions today either. we got a lot of attendees. I can, I can go after a couple more. Bobby Ocampo, is SGLT2, are SGLT2s better than metformin for removing fatty liver? Well, I'm trying to come up with a good analogy. Um, hmm. I was going to say... That's sort of like asking, uh, should you wear, if you, if you wear a t-shirt and an undershirt, I mean, a, a, a shirt and a coat, uh, is the shirt or the coat better? Um, each has its own place in a different role. Uh, metformin is a good, it's the recommended and first starting point. And, it's the least expensive, it's dirt cheap, and it's got lower risk. So, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that you should start with metformin at, and start with metformin at lower rates, lower serious levels of insulin resistance, prediabetes. 
SGLT2s are far more expensive. In the United States, they're like 700 bucks a month. That's the big problem with the two new drug classes. They're very expensive. There's another issue, and it's, you know, it's related to, to danger. You can get some very serious inguinal uh, infections with the SGLT2s. If you think about, go back to the mechanism, you, you can understand why that's an issue. Basically, now you're peeing out a lot of sugar in your urine that you didn't do before. So you can get uh, infections in the area where you're peeing them out. You just have to be careful about that. So, uh, again, that's sort of like saying which is better, red, blue, or green. They're appropriate for different situations. STLT2s, can they get you to autophagy faster? Anything that improves your insulin resistance is going to can help you there. John Tocho, you have to wonder who did the statistical review of that study. <laughs> yes, you do. Uh, no comment. <clears throat> and what was motivating? E.T. himself, always need to wonder. I agree, always need to ask some, you know, it's the questions that really, it's not so much the answers as it is the questions, isn't it? JMK, why do you think there's so much animus between proponents of vegan and carnivore diets? Uh, well, I, I will say this. There's nothing more important in terms of our health than our diet. Absolutely nothing more important. So it's a very important topic, and these people are coming from opposite ends of the spectrum. So everybody gets emotional about health, uh, and these people are looking at two different Two different perspectives. I wish I knew. I get caught in the crosshairs in, on that debate and argument. Uh, Bobby, please post outline of your course. I'll submit for continuing professional educations for MD and short bio, Dr. Brewer. Um, Bobby, if you would send an email or uh, 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 Gilbert, could you put up the email address info at prevmedheartrisk.com. And Bobby, if you'll send that, uh, you can get that information. Info at prevmedheartrisk.com. See that, Bobby? Keep that up there for a few minutes, if you would. Uh, endocrinologists and nephrologists I consulted recently are not recommending prolonged water fasting when I told them I'm doing 72 hours once a month, seven 48s in the three rec remaining weeks. I'm not surprised, Bobby. You know, and especially if you're taking uh, hypoglycemic meds, like even metformin, but, you know, the other ones as well, clearly they're going to get nervous about that. Uh, with farmed salmon, are the fish eating omega-3s like wild salmon do? And in short, are we getting as much? It, it, that's a really good point. I don't think you're getting as much uh, omega-3s um, but uh, farmed salmon is not devoid of omega, of omega-3s. If it is, I would love for someone to tell me about that. Um, <clears throat> let me look real quick and see. Okay, so Bambi's asking, any plans of putting together a CM CIMT event? You know, um, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Personally, we are way distracted in terms of 
getting everything that needs to be done correctly with the Medicare program. But David Mainz is actually doing some of these CIMT events. If you go over to David Mainz's um, uh, website, I will, um, I'll, ask, I'll ask David to put some stuff up for us. I know he, he did, he's done several over the past couple of months. <clears throat> and we just didn't put them on our, on our channel. It's a great question, Bambi. Franklin De, De Jesus. Good morning, Doc. Had a heart attack back in April. Since then, I've introduced a whole foods plant-based diet into my lifestyle. I've been missing chicken breasts and salmon lately. Can I bring that back into my diet? Well, again, <clears throat> I don't know you, Franklin. I don't know your, what's going on with you specifically, but I can say that, um, yes, um, I, there's not, I have not met a patient for whom I felt like salmon and chicken were bad. And I've had a few patients that have had some significant levels of kidney disease. You know, that's, you have to watch your protein when you've got very significant uh, kidney disease. Last two comments and we will uh, we'll have to turn in. Uh, Franklin, Sh Frank Shattuck, howdy doc. I've been watching you for several years. You've taught me a lot. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate hearing that. And LPG 12338, outstanding uh, super chat. Uh, thank you so much for the super chat, LPG. We appreciate that. Outstanding content as always. Thanks for sharing. And thank you so much for your interest. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.